From the Gettysburgian and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg, I'm Ben Ponce, and this is On Target. I'm Gary Mangala, and today on Target, we will be discussing the recent outbreak of coronavirus and how it affected Gettysburg College, as well as the restructuring of the staffing of the president's office. Stay with us. Let's get into it. So this is take two yep. uh, of the news segment. Some fun technical difficulties at WZBT led us to have recorded a 35-minute news segment that uh, appeared to be going just fine until it didn't. Yeah. So. I was actually really proud of that one, too. Like, that was one of, I, I'm pretty sure I said that was the best pod we'd ever done, to which Ben got irritated that I called it a pod, of course. We'll see if we can recapture the magic here. <laughs> uh, so, first item up for uh, discussion, the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, so, basically... So, what's up with that? Yeah. So, basically, I'm not going to obviously recap the actual coronavirus. You can get that from whatever news uh, media source you want to. Um, but, basically, in terms of just Gettysburg College students that have been affected by it, um, six students were going to go abroad to Shanghai. Um and obviously, an outbreak of coronavirus makes that less than great. Yeah, the State Department eventually, uh, in collaboration <laughs> with the CDC, issued a level four travel warning saying you shouldn't fly or be in China at all. And then some American Airlines started canceling all flights to China. So I guess it's not a good thing. I guess Gettysburg College could have chartered its own jet. That would have been something, actually. Um, yeah, but basically what that happened was um, students obviously started considering not going abroad to China. Some students actually ended up going abroad um, to other places. So Abby Howard leaves on Monday, actually, which is crazy, to go to Nepal. There's another student that's going to Jer Jerusalem, I believe. And then the rest of them ended up coming back to Gettysburg. They got enrolled in classes late, but still before the at drop period, which ended yesterday. We're recording this on a Saturday, the 31st. No, it is Saturday, February 1st. Jesus Gari. Christ, I haven't done anything with this first month. Yeah, I was going to say one twelfth of the way through the year. Do not, not feel like it. I am one twelfth of the way through the productive, you know, yeah. output of the year. But anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> basically they all got they um, worked with CGE and uh, to a lesser extent, Res Life and Registrar to get courses and a place to live. And they're all back on campus having a grand old time. Um, not getting sick from coronavirus as it stands. Um, some colleges across the country have been testing students that have had both the symptoms and have been to the region, but we have not had any issues of that yet. But the college did say that if that had ended up being the case, that there was a student who had been to the region, either because they lived there or were studying abroad there recently, they would obviously be tested and treated accordingly. Right. I mean, so it's interesting because you know, Gettysburg College has 63 students mm -hmm. who hail from China, international students, which is the largest number of any uh, any country. Yeah. And of course, students have been sitting abroad there. And, and I don't know. If, I, I know of faculty members that in the past have been there to conduct research over breaks. So the college said that that people have been to that region. And what's maybe a little um, you know, concerning or, or potentially disconcerting mm -hmm. is that the the virus can exist, like you can have it without presenting symptoms. Yeah. And so, 
you know, the college has sent out campus-wide communication saying that if you have symptoms and have been to this region to come to the health center, but, um, you know, you, you could have it and be spreading it and not have symptoms. And you would just think that if, and again, not trying to be an alarmist here, but if yeah. there was going to be a place in the United States that would be a natural spot for some kind of an outbreak, it would be, it could be a college campus, you know, a place where people kind of live on top of each other. They all eat in the same places. They all sleep in kind of close quarters and yeah, whatnot. Definitely. And so, you know, you just, you, you, you hope. And the college, I think to its credit has been keeping an eye on this, but, but it's one of those things that, you know, it's a little, a little concerning. It feels like an optics issue. Like, I, I, I can see how the college would be wary of, like, taking the 63 Chinese students and right. testing them. Like, I get that, but, like, it's not just, it's anybody who's been to China. Also, like, it, it the sympt the, the other thing is the symptoms do present, like, like a normal flu, right? Yeah, it has similar symptoms to an upper rush upper respiratory infection, I think. And here we are in the height of flu season. Now, there are some uh, media reports that have said, you know, don't worry about the coronavirus, get your flu shot. Yeah. And, that's, you know, there's probably something yeah. to that. And I like on like on one hand. Truth be told, I haven't gotten a flu shot. Well, that's awkward. Uh, get your flu shot. Um, but like, I think that I understand that there's an assumption that because coronavirus has been so big in the media that if anybody at Gettysburg College had any type of upper respiratory infection, they would be more likely to go to the health center. But I also know many a person that has been sick, me included, and I think you too. And you're just like, well, what's the point of going to the health center for me to like for them to tell me what I already know. So I don't know if everybody who got an upper respiratory infection that it ended up being coronavirus yeah, would go to the health the center. The health center has an institutional credibility issue on this campus. 100%. Whether it is deserved or not, and my own personal experience would suggest that it is. I've only been there once, and it was, well, twice. I um, And, you know, it was not terribly useful they yeah. gave me some salt packets and sent me on my way yeah what I is wish that I would, about I, I wish I was like if you want salt go to the health center I don't understand that I mean I think that the point was that you you know you gargle salt, salt water and that helps um you know with a cold or a sore throat or something but like you know I have not heard of a student who's reported feeling that the health center helped to adequately address a health issue and so it makes it in a situation like this, or even in a situation where there's, it could be a flu outbreak, mm -hmm. you know, which is probably a more likely scenario than this coronavirus. Yeah. But in either case, you know, it, it's one of those situations where institutional credibility can come back to bite you. Yeah. And I think also like there's a lot of issues with, you know, students not wanting to pet. And like, that's also like a thing, I think in general, uh, not just with the health center, but I think conceptually people like, if you have a cold or you think you have a cold, you're more likely to not go to any type of like medical help because you just assume it's a cold. And why am I going to pay you right. 50 to hundred dollars for you to tell me what I already know? And like in these kinds of situations, I'll, I'll say it right now. And maybe this will be the, uh, the thing that I say that gets me actually tested for coronavirus. If I uh, thought I had enough for a respiratory infection, I would not go to the health center and it would probably end up being coronavirus by my luck. 
Okay, great. Uh, so moving, <laughs> moving right along. Um, Someone runs in here and is like, get her, get her, get her. The coronavirus police are knocking <laughs> on the door. Uh, Officer Ricky Pierce with a surgical mask. <laughs> I'd be fine with that, honestly. Okay, uh, so in other news, uh, the the college held its first civil discourse event. Yeah, I was abroad when this became a thing. What What is Bob doing? <laughs> well, that question could take a while to answer. <laughs> um, but the civil discourse series has been an initiative of the president uh, in the run-up to the 2020 election. Okay. Um, you know, in a politically acrimonious climate that we exist in, the goal of of the series, as near as I can tell, is to you know, help students constructively engage in political conversations. And yeah. so they held in the fall a workshop with an organization called Better Angels that tries to foster, I think their tagline is dialogue across difference. And that was fairly well received, I think. Um, but this civil discourse speaker series that's happening this spring kicked off on Wednesday and I was participating. I moderated the Q and a with the speaker afterwards. Mm -hmm. So this is, these are my, you know, I'm just a student in this particular uh, situation as You're opposed never to just a, a student, Ben Ponce to a journalist, but <laughs> I was struck by how, not super into civil discourse, it seemed, the speaker was. Her name was Lara Schwartz. Mm -hmm. She's in charge of a project on civil discourse at American University. Uh, and, you know, the premise of her talk, first she distinguished between civil discourse and productive discourse. Interesting. And she said that the college, rightly conceived, is a place where... Participants on the college campus are engaged in a truth-seeking endeavor. The idea that, uh, you know, you collectively dial uh, engage in dialogue. Did you try to use dialogue I as a stopped verb? myself because it makes me want to pull my hair out when I hear people do that. Um, but in any case, that that that's the goal of a college campus and that this productive discourse is how we do that. She was not... And I asked pretty directly whether civility is a part of that. And she didn't really say yes. Um, you know, she asked, I, I asked at one point a question that, that some have suggested that in this time when injustice is being perpetuated, um, and, you know, if you're on the left, an example of that might be uh, the Trump administration in, in confining children in cages at the border, or if you're on the right, you might view uh, Democrats' support for late-term abortions as being evidence of an injustice mm -hmm. that makes this an exigent circumstance such that, you know, you solve the issue first and engage in civility later once you've rectified the injustice. And I asked her, you know, how she feels about those sorts of lines of argument. Does that seem like a slippery slope? And she said, well, basically, your question can be rephrased as, should you punch a Nazi? And <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and she didn't say you shouldn't. Now, later, she said that violence is never the answer. But then again, she also later said that we remember um, the folks 
who take action as opposed to uh, those who try to engage within the system mm-hmm. when confronted with injustice. She referred to the civil rights movement. She referred to a Martin Luther King quote that I'm sure I'm going to butcher, but essentially is that, you know, the moderates are the ones who do the most to sustain injustice uh, by trying to keep this appearance of, of kind of civil whatever. And if nothing else, I don't think that it was what Bob was anticipating. Uh, oh, he and, was there, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, this is kind of his series. I think that his view, and I don't want to speak for him, but what's been apparent in his public statements is that students need to be able to disagree civilly. Mm-hmm. And that was not really a theme that shined through this particular lecture. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was thought provoking to be sure. And at a liberal arts college, maybe that's the point, but it wasn't a full throated defense of civil discourse. And I'm not even sure it was a full throated defense of what she would characterize as being productive discourse. I think it's really interesting because I think maybe part of the disconnect is like what you're looking, like what's the goal of discourse as a concept. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, to the question that you had asked her, I think that no, frankly, and I think this specifically about the topic of abortion, I don't think that anyone who comes into a conversation about abortion that comes into it disagreeing tries to leave it where like they've changed somebody's mind. Like I've, so I think one of the most productive conversations, well, no, I'm going to say one of the best like conversations I ever had about civil discourse was with a friend of mine who's pro-life and I am pro-choice. And we talked about it and like, we knew from the start, like we were, there's not, cause like the whole, like it comes down to the conversation about when do you believe life starts, right? And I'm not going to obviously get into abortion, but, like, the point that I think is really important here is that, like, we both went into the conversation knowing that um, we were going to not come out of this with someone's mind changed. Like, there's, it's just, uh, it's just one of those topics that it's just not going to happen. Um, and if it does, wild, love to hear how that happened. But, um, but what actually ended up happening is we came out of it, like, more inclined to respect the person's opinion and also understand where the other person's coming from and uh, developed a level of empathy, which is what I think civil discourse should be about. But she seems to like the truth seeking thing, I think is a weird way of putting it because it's a, that's a, a discourse that we're having about morality in the same lines of the conversation about is Trump putting children in cages. Okay. Um, it's a morality issue. And in that way, you're probably not going to change a person's mind, but you can probably like lessen the idea that if we disagree, you're a bad person. I think two things. First, empathy is not a word that I think was uttered the entire event, which struck me as kind of strange. <laughs> but second, to the to the point about whether it's worth engaging in these discussions of morality and, and whether you're going to change someone's mind, I do worry that... The college campus, or and I won't say the college, that the Gettysburg College campus, because it's really the only one that I have a mm. 
uh, frame to speak on with any authority. I am concerned that there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for mind changing as in like for one to change one's own mind or to not, you know, to have thought about an issue, but to not have a strong position on it. Mm. There's this idea that if you're not on my side, you're wrong and you're not worth kind of uh, you know, trying to win over or or that you're not mm-hmm. woke enough or that you're not, you know, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and that just I think that we would all be well suited to be willing to not know a yeah. little more. And I think that particularly on some of these thorny social issues that have a lot of competing areas of consideration, whether it's abortion or or I think there are people who have legitimate questions about, um, you know, certain issues of race and gender. And, and there's just kind of an accepted party line in some cases on a college campus that if you're not there, it doesn't really matter why you're not there. You're wrong. And I think that rightly considered, rightly conceived, this idea of civil or productive discourse would foster an, if nothing else, as you said, an empathy that at least acknowledges where someone else is coming from. You know, I think that one of the challenges of a diverse campus where you have people who, you know, went to a high school that was probably 100% white in a rural part of the country Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe rarely met a Democrat, let alone a, Mm a Bernie Sanders supporter or a Uh, you know, someone with strong left-wing political persuasions as right in class alongside people who came maybe from a, an urban environment, a school that was, you know, 100% people of color and didn't, you know, confront very many Republicans, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and you just, there, there is an inherent need to, I think, I think empathy is the right word to s- try and understand where another person is coming from before you reach a snap judgment about whether someone is sufficiently engaged in the pursuit of, of justice or whatever else. And I do worry that on this campus, and I would imagine on other campuses, and I think reinforced by this civil discourse talk, mm-hmm there was kind of a preconceived idea that you know what's just and it's up to you to decide how to engage with someone who doesn't and maybe not engaging with them at all is the correct answer or maybe punching a Nazi is a correct answer and, and you know, certainly a Nazi's, you know, that's an extreme example that mm. might undermine the broader point, you know, <laughs> that that, um, you know, it's, it's worth trying to engage across difference, but I don't know. I mean, I'm also sympathetic to this 
argument that we've heard a number of times in public settings on campus that people are tired of expending what they call free labor on educating other people on certain issues. I just wonder, you know, we all chose to come to a liberal arts college, and to some extent, that suggests to me that we have all chosen to take as a responsibility on ourselves to be willing to be wrong or at least willing to hear someone else out. And that wasn't exactly what shined through the civil discourse event, mm -hmm. at least to me. Yeah, I think that, um, I think there's like also a culture issue, not just like in Gettysburg or even of college students, but I think just like in a larger society, um, more than not like, like being pushed into a corner of like, you need to change your mind or you're wrong. But also this idea that like, if you're coming in to a, like a, a heavy hitting topic, you don't feel as though you can change your opinions. Like I felt that way a lot. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I felt that way a lot with, see, I think you and I are really lucky in that because we're in a situation of like, of being reporters, we have, we are forced to take that time to get all the facts and to not like specifically, I think we went through this the hardest with Garth Wade. You and I spent an entire week where I don't even think we once even said how we felt about it. We're just like, this is what was said by somebody else. And then we came into specifically this room um, where we are in the, not the WZBT mm -hmm. studio. We're in the back office because we don't trust the audio equipment, uh, which is another issue. But, um, we were in this room and it was the first time I actually had a genuine conversation with anyone on how I actually felt about it. And the thing was, I'm pretty sure in that it's, it's a podcast episode. You can go listen to it. I'm pretty sure both of us change our mind in there like six or seven times because it's a tough issue. And like, that's, and I was, but it was a setting where in which that was okay. Like it was okay to change your mind because what's the point of backing into a corner about something like that. And that didn't feel, so then there was a, like a campus conversation that everybody had, but everyone was like just making these comments. And then it felt as they were all backed into a corner that you cannot now change your mind because you made this public statement. Right. And that's not discourse to me. Right. I mean, that, right. I, I, I think that is, it's performative. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's. Punchy, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, it stakes out a position, but you're right. Discourse implies a back and forth. And I worry that, you know, the second event in this series is about political polarization. I worry to some extent that when we approach this idea of discourse through the lens of political polarization, it almost gives people an out that we're so polarized, it's hopeless to think that <laughs> I'm going to change anyone's mind anyway. So, you know, I'm just going to believe what I believe and others are going to believe what they believe. And I think that the challenge that I had hoped this series might confront, and maybe it still will, is that reducing polarization doesn't necessarily require changing one's views, but it does require acknowledging, if not the legitimacy of another's, that others are going to have other views, mm -hmm. and that writing those people off doesn't strike me as very civil or productive. Are all of the, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I'm saying it for the sake of what I'm saying. 
and you'll get what I'm saying when I say it. Um, well, that was a lot of wind up. Here we go. Yeah. Um, are all of the civil discourse lecture or whatever they are going to be dialoguing about dialoguing or is anyone ever going to just dialogue about something? Well, so the second event is focused. It's it's a professor at the University of Maryland who's written a, a great book. Her name is Liliana Mason. She's going to be talking about the title of the event has something to do with political polarization. And so I imagine it might be maybe more of a social scientific perspective on the issue. And then the third event is a gentleman who wrote a book um, kind of about he was a he was a Homeland Security official, Republican. Um, and he wrote a memo at some point suggesting that white supremacy is the biggest national security threat to the United States, more so than Islamic terrorism, and then was kind of exiled from the Republican Party, and he wrote a book about that. And I think that book generally is the topic of the discussion. So to answer your question, kind of? Well, no, in that way, because like it feels like... Are you suggesting maybe what maybe or what are you is what you're getting at that perhaps what might be constructive is to put up two people who actually disagree on an issue and have them watch them civilly discuss have a civil dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that might be constructive. And and yeah, I think it should be more constructive because I feel like you're right. This is a very meta conversation. Yeah, it's like we're talking about talking about talking about things. Hence why I said dialoguing six times. But uh, like, it's just it's just very odd. And I don't know, maybe it would be interesting to have like I've never been to the like the the political group debates things because they terrify me. And every time I hear about them, they like go off the rails. They're pretty stilted. They're not really. And and again, to your point a minute ago, yeah, they're basically just a series of prepared speeches. They're not really. That's an interesting point. Let's build on that. Or I disagree with that. Here's why. It's the clubs know what the six topics of the debates are going to be. They prepare one minute speeches on them. Everyone gives their little speeches. Nobody really engages with each other. And and that's the end. And that's exactly consistent with the political environment more broadly that yeah. we're living in. But at a liberal arts college, a college of any kind, it would seem to me that if we're going to participate in, as Lara Schwartz said, this truth seeking endeavor, unless Everything that is in my brain today is the truth. Me just talking and then not listening to what someone else has to say is not participating in the truth-seeking endeavor, nor is it helping anyone else to participate in the truth-seeking endeavor. I'm like, now I'm just thinking about if instead of like watching the Democratic debate, it was like just like a conversation, like they all sat. A round table. A round table, and they just had, like, a moral... Like, that would be so much more fascinating, and that would tell you so much... That must tell you so much about a person, because you're like, how mature are you to have this conversation and have it productively? Or would Bernie Sanders just keep screaming? Like, that's what it comes down to. Would Bernie Sanders keep screaming if he was in a civil discourse situation? But anyway, I think that that would be really interesting, and I think that that's something that maybe Bob should consider, especially... I don't know if he listens... Does he listen to the On Target? I don't know, maybe... Bob, do you listen to On Target? (laughs) Um... But if like in the fall semester when the election's like really gearing up, I would be really fascinated to see a civil like discourse actually happen about politics because I think that would be really fascinating. And I think that that's something that it would it would teach you not only about like 
the issues and like what people feel about it. But it would also like be a really good like study in how people like are doing that. Because instead of saying like be mature, show us someone being mature, you know, and I feel like that is inherent to the liberal arts education. Like, don't like it's why we like hands on learning. It's why we like, you know, going on school trips to things. It's the same basic thing. Why am I getting a lecture about a lecture about a lecture? It's very meta, as you said. Right. So anyway, it was fairly it was reasonably well attended. Sigma Chi came, so they were all sitting right in the front. <laughs> Why specifically Sigma Chi? I think they made it an academic event. Uh, but I would if I'm being honest, I doubt the second and third events will be as well attended because this one did not really start off in a way that people would want to come back. Yeah, I mean, to put it bluntly. So, civil discourse. I don't know if we solved it, but, you know. Yeah. We discoursed about discourse. And yeah. I'm not going to use discourse as a verb anymore. That was Can you terrible. make discourse a verb? Well. Is there a way to, like, edit the word? Dis- I mean, no. I think discourse can, like dialogue. Stop. No. Be used as a verb, even though it makes me want to vomit. Okay, okay moving right along. Yeah, let's uh, talk about something less meta. <laughs> um, oh, uh, so Jay North, obviously, we talked about this in the last podcast, um, announced her retirement. And uh, in the fastest turnaround time I've ever seen any staffing change at Gettysburg College, Bob well, sent out an email. First of all, it's yeah. worth noting that Bob didn't find out the day that he announced yeah, Jane North's retirement. That's valid. So, like, he's presumably been planning this but for a it's, while. It's but anyway. it's still a fast turner. You're right. Um, and I was really, really impressed by it, actually. I mean, a little bit pissed off because I was trying to take a nap when he sent the email, and then I had to write the article about it. Um, thanks, Bob. Don't write, send out emails during my nap. Time. Okay, so Kristen <laughs> Stumpfley, uh, yeah. Associate Provost of Academic ass- Assessment, uh, is taking over as, and I will say that I predicted that you Bob really would have a did. chief of staff. And what do we get? But a chief of staff. Yeah. So listen to On Target for all your hot advanced predictions <laughs> on college staffing structures. Yeah. I'm there for you. But uh, anyway, Kristen Stumpfley <laughs> will become the chief of staff and strategic advisor to Bob, which is the closest thing to a one-to-one replacement to Jane of the staffing changes yes. that were announced. I mean, I think, you know, to put it in real estate terms, I think Kristen Stumpfley is going to move into that office. In the president's office. I agree. Um, So that's kind of one piece of this. But she's not actually assuming many of the roles that Jane North held, which we can get to in a second, but frankly suggests that Jane North was not exactly a number two in the sense of like a COO that oversaw a lot of different things. She had some kind of discrete responsibilities that have been farmed out to others and I think that Chris Stumpley is likely to have more of a advisor to Bob and kind of some day-to-day administrative roles that maybe Jane North didn't. I mean, Jane also, like, the thing about Jane's role that was, like, very hands in a lot of buckets was that she would, like, I mean, throughout her career at Gettysburg, she would do one thing and then just keep adding to it, right? which makes it really hard for someone else to step into a role that is. That's true. Like finished like. And that. in that vein, uh, other three other people are yeah. also filling parts of this. Um, Darian Davenport, who is the assistant VP of college life and in charge of the Office of Multicultural Engagement, uh, 
uh, and who was gone for three months over the summer and then was back by the time students returned or almost. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, has been appointed to president's council. No real title change, although he's now also going to oversee HR. Isn't he the secretary of the board He's now? becoming the assistant secretary to the board of trustees. Yeah. Okay. But his is the one that seems like maybe there's, a, I don't want to call it a pretense, but it seems as if there that he was going to get promoted to president's council and we're just kind of announcing it along with all of these changes yeah to make it seem a little bit more natural but in any case he will oversee human resources uh well part of human resources because hr currently is constructed as including you know the traditional hr functions yeah. as well as risk management functions but the risk management functions are going in to the finance and administration division and vp dan constellate um so there's that and then finally jane north had a uh, few functions in sort of community relations as in the local community yeah, like outreach. and those yeah. will probably where they've belonged all this time, Absolutely. truth be told, fall into communications and marketing where Jamie Yates has also recently been promoted to president's council. So as you noted yesterday, Gary, uh, president's council is now up to 10 people from the original eight that were on it when Bob took over in July. Yeah. So at the rate we're going, you know, Everyone. there'll be four new members of president's council a year. So you do the math. President's council will have doubled in, <laughs> in, in two years. President's council have 16 people. You're on president's council. You're on president's council. <laughs> What's interesting here to me, and we asked and did not as of this moment have not received a response is Darian Davenport's role because he's staying yeah. as an assistant vice president of college life, the head of college life who's on president's council is Julie Ramsey. Um, and Jeff Foster is the associate VP of college life. So theoretically in the college life org chart, Jeff Foster is above Darian Davenport, but Darian Davenport is now going to be, Maybe a direct report to the president. That's what's a little unclear. I'm assuming. I, doesn't it seem like a president's council would mean its direct report, though? It does. And so that also suggests is is. But the email was pretty explicit that he will be staying an assistant vice president of college life. Ultimately, who does Darian Davenport's performance evaluation doesn't matter so much as just kind of the broader question as to how this came about and and some people have rightly raised i've heard this from three or four people who have independently brought it up to me was all of this kind of promised as part of him coming back to the college so here's my prediction if i can be so frank okay um so we both knew that jane was retiring before she retired so i can say that but um but i think what happened is when jane announced her retirement to like Bob and to everybody that knew that I'm pretty sure Bob knew that coming in I think he always I think he really liked Darian um and I think that it's he, worth noting Darian Davenport was on the presidential search committee yeah um and like I I mean everyone knows him as like a force um I mean he's a 
He's the good. consummate bridge builder was yeah. how the email from the president referred to him. I mean, I don't have a bad word to say about him, and I can say a lot of bad things about a lot of administrators on this campus. And a um, lot of editors of the Get His Virgin, Oh, too. a lot of editors of the Get His Virgin. Uh, a lot of male editors of the Get, Get His Virgin, specifically. Uh, Garrett Blazer's great, though. Uh, one out of two of us. Yeah, so... Um, but diversity. <laughs> I don't have a bad thing to say about Darian, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. He's just he's just frankly good at his job. So I think Bob like planned that, and then Darian got a different job, and Bob kind of had to like. That's possible. You know, although, like, here's my plans for you. Although Darian Davenport had left by the time Bob started in July. That's so. true. I don't know. I, I'm not suggesting the presence necessarily of anything nefarious here, but it does seem a little strange that he was before, you know, one year ago today, he was executive director of the office of multicultural engagement. He came back in September after a very quick three month stint to a institution that we would not consider a peer in yeah. Penn State, Harrisburg, yeah, he came back with a promotion to assistant vice president of college life. It was cast as, well, he was pretty much already doing that when he left, so we just gave him the title. Okay. And now, four months later, suddenly he's going to be a direct report to the president uh, and overseeing HR, which is apparently something he did earlier in his career. And he's going to be working with the board of trustees. First of all, he's going to need, instead of a business card, he's going to need like a business bookmark to be able to fit it all on one thing. It just strikes me that there's, there are a few people on campus that get put on a lot of committees and get added a bunch of responsibilities. I'm thinking about by the time Jennifer McCary left, and she probably left Gary before you even came. Mm-hmm. She was previously the, t- I mean, she's, I think she started as the title nine officer yeah. but by the time she left, you know, she was in charge of the women's center and she had a violence prevention coordinator part of her job. And she had some broader college life responsibilities. And so there are just a handful of people over the years who have gotten tacked on title after title. Jay North being one of them. Well, not even, no, I wouldn't put her in that category so much because ultimately she got promoted to executive vice president, which in most organizations is a COO role that does oversee a bunch of things. I'm talking more about people who have the commas in their title. The commas, but even more so than that, like if you want someone like, you know, if you want someone to have all these responsibilities, are they actually doing all of them? Are they actually able to do all of them? Jane North was not doing human resources by the time she left. She was overseeing it. But you think about what Darian Davenport's being asked to do. Theoretically, he has broader responsibilities in college life. He's now going to be overseeing HR. He's going to be working with the board of trustees. And oh, by the way, he's also doing the job that he was hired for as a full-time job in charge of the Office of Multicultural Engagement. And so you just wonder, do we spread some of these people too thin to the point where they're either being, uh, and when I say exploited, I don't mean in like a, you know, physical exploitation way, but in a kind of professional 
way. And, and, you know, the other thing that I might be remiss not to note is that often the people, the people in, in Jennifer Bloomquist in the provost's office is another example of someone who gets put on a million and one committees, you know, these are people of color who we want to make sure that we're representing, uh, you know, that there's representation at senior levels of administration, but we only have the same few people. So we just give them a whole bunch of titles. And, and Jennifer McCary was, you know, the highest ranking. She might've been the highest ranking person of color in college life. In fact, she was by the time she left. And so you just wonder like, is this our approach to diversity? Just, Put the same four black people in roles and then then we have a lot of black people in roles, but it's the same person with seven roles. Yeah, I I agree with that. (laughs) And so, you know, it's just one of those things where. There's a limit, certainly, to the number of administrators the college can hire, and some would argue we already have too many, Uh, but Mm -hmm. it does seem that the approach that gets used a lot of the time is to just tack on one more responsibility to, you know, by the, at, at one point, Jennifer Bloomquist, in addition, she was associate provost for faculty development and dean of social sciences. Now that is one position analogous to Chris Stumpley, who was associate provost of academic assessment and dean of natural sciences. Like the model in the provost's office is, you have an administrative responsibility and then you're the dean of one of the three divisions. But she was also, she chaired the Freedom of Expression Committee. She's on a million and one search committees. Isn't she a professor too? She, I mean, she was like Chris Stumpley, like Jack Uh, Ryan, the other vice provost. But, you know, you think about, and and not to mention, Darian Davenport was on the Presidential Search Committee. He's been, he's a sought after inclusion partner on searches. So, And so it's just one of these things where these people seem to and there are just certain people who seem to be assigned a lot of things and it maybe makes us feel better about our level of diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. at senior ranks but you know do you i don't know i got a vibe about specifically darian once and it was um (coughs) so backstory in this i like for communications and marketing asked me to like, you know this, I'm saying this for the podcast perspective, but uh, asked me to like do the voice of like this 27 questions interview with Bob. And like when they were first planning it, they walked me through it when Bob wasn't there yet, just telling me what I was going to be doing. And they're like, yeah, maybe we'll have him talk to somebody. And then they specifically mentioned Darian's name first. And on one hand, I do get it because Darian would like be great at it because he's the most friendly person. He's about the most gregarious person you'll ever meet. Yeah. I mean, you saw him interact with me the other day and he was like loud and screaming and it was hilarious. And he's great. But I like I think I immediately pushed back and I said, that's that personally to me, like as a person of color, that would feel like it's like a. Oh, here's another white guy in our president's office, but here's a black person he's friends with. Like, you know, like the whole like thing that happened in 2012 where it was like there's the same one black guy in every commercial it felt like that so i like i i said that and then it didn't happen which is great i don't know if it was me or just because it was a thought already steaming around in cnm's head that that would feel weird but when that happened 
I was really aware of Darian's presence and the fact that he is good at his job and he is, as you said, very gregarious. But at the same time, he's still a black man. And to what extent is he being, you know, utilized properly and maybe overly so because he's good at his job or what part is it that he's a black man? And I would wonder his perspective on that. Um because I have asked him in the past about it, like in like just conversational context. But I think, you know, when you're someone like any person in college administration who, you know, is ambitious and wants to lead and wants to do work, you're not going to be inclined to think it's not for anything besides your value. But it is an interesting. You just wonder, for example, is the Office of Multicultural Engagement going to get the attention that or is he going to be working like 82 hour weeks, like 40 hours? Yeah, doing- and he has kids and he doesn't also like part of the reason he like switched jobs was because he wanted to be closer to his kids because they're getting to that age. And he drives like an hour to get to work every day, which is the same thing for a lot of people that work on this campus. But like he's a busy dude and he probably got the heaviest bulk added to him. Like Chris Dumfley's not keeping her other job. Right. Yeah. And like Jamie Yates is adding a job that she probably kind of should have did. had. Um, Dan Consulate, I mean, I don't think he's going to have a horrible time. Yeah, I don't think he's going to like lose. It's his not hair as if he's it. going to be. And again, I think in his case, it's going to be he'll be overseeing risk management. Just, you know, it's adding maybe a direct report to him. But yeah, it's fine. I, it is strange. Maybe not strange. I just wonder how it's going to play out. And it struck me kind of in the same, and I don't know, like this is all speculative too. Yeah, definitely. But it just has not been lost on me that there are certain college administrators who keep turning up on the same, you know, on every time there's a committee or a big new assignment or another line on the resume, it's the same people. And, you know, in in several conspicuous cases, Going back to my first year, they've just been people of color. And you just wonder whether that reflects a desire from the college to maybe skirt some of the harder work that would be having better representation of many diverse groups and not just not just race necessarily across the senior administration. And I always feel as though, I mean, I think there's also a perspective. See, like, I can't really speak to it because I'm considered what they call a model minority. So I can't really speak to this. But there is a perception that people of color, specifically those of like Hispanic or like uh, black backgrounds, are are going to feel as so that they have to say yes to the things because they have to work harder. Otherwise, it's not like perceived. So like, I wonder how many times it's been the case for Jennifer Bloomquist or like Darian Davenport where they were asked to be on a search committee and like they had a lot of work to do, but felt that they had to say yes. Um, I wonder that, but at the same time, obviously these are all really ambitious people. You don't get to be college administrators without being such. Right. And, and the other thing is that if you were to, I assume that we do performance reviews of college administrators, I would just guess based on what I see of these the uh, of Jennifer Bloomquist and of Darian Davenport and and before of Jennifer McCary they were all extremely hot are and yeah. were all extremely highly regarded for how they yeah. do their jobs but to your point I, I mean I think that's a valid yeah. question 
Um, and so, yeah. so anyway, there's the, there's the presidential reorganization, president's <laughs> office reorganization. And then a bunch of nonsense from Gar and Ben. Yeah. Well, you know, come for the news, stay for the nonsense. That should be the slogan of on target, I suppose. Well, I am assuming it is on target, <laughs> then off target. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the presidential reorganization. We'll be back with the bullet report. for the bullet report. On January the 22nd, the women's basketball team defeated Johns Hopkins 52-44 while the men lost 77-71 the same day the men's wrestling team lost to Messiah 34-6. The men's and women's track and field teams participated in the Franklin and Marshall Invitational but did not receive a team score. On January the 25th, the wrestling team lost 40-3 to Washington and Lee. The men's swimming team defeated Mary Washington 159-103. The women won 141-121 the same day against the same team. The wrestling team lost to Muhlenberg 29-19. The women's basketball team defeated Muhlenberg 58-49 while the men lost 71-55. On January the 29th, the women's basketball team defeated Franklin and Marshall 71-53. The men won 67-63. My parents went for some unknown reason. And on the January the 30th, the wrestling team lost to York 27-17. Thus endeth the bullet report. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank the staff of the Gettysburgian and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of the Gettysburgian and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a 2019 graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory of Music. Join us next week. Not sure who our guest will be, but I'm sure it'll be great. Have a great week. <laughs>